Well, we're going through the Gospel of Mark, as you know, verse by verse, sometimes sentence by sentence. So please do turn to Mark 15. And the passage that we'll be going through today is from verse 35 through to 41. Mark 15. Mark 15, verse 35, and the word of God reads, When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When a centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James the Less, and Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Just a background. So far, we've seen that for three hours. Darkness so thick fell over the globe. And it was felt from Canada to Ukraine, from South America to Asia, from Melbourne to Europe. What happened? God has put on the black robe of judgment and descended upon Calvary. The divine executioner, the avenger, of justice, has poured out all his fury upon Jesus. In the Old Testament, we know that as the high priest would slaughter a goat once a year on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle its blood upon the Ark of the Covenant, so also Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, was sacrificed for us on the cross. As the high priest would lay his hand on a, on a scapegoat to transfer all sins upon it and then sends it away to be banished in the wilderness, abandoned, forsaken, so also Jesus, our scapegoat, had our sins laid upon him, and he was banished, abandoned, forsaken by the Father. And as the daily sacrifices were burnt at the altar, and its smoke went up as a sweet-smelling aroma to the nostrils of God, so also Jesus. The burning hot wrath of God was kindled against not sinners, but against their sin bearer, 
Christ thus has become our burnt offering. At the altar of the cross, where Jesus was hung for us, God's wrath was satisfied. His justice was vindicated. But there is more. Because as we peel these layers, one at a time, God's wrath, God's justice, we discover that beneath them, there is also at the cross, God's love was displayed. God's mercy was portrayed and God's grace was proclaimed. The nailing of this precious, sinless son of God onto this tree for sinful people like us. And even the father to be willing to punish his most beloved. It it speaks of none other but his love. And Jesus has become the all-sufficient Savior for all our needs. Do we have shame and guilt that makes us feel like worthless worms? Jesus has become our sacrifice once for all. Sin bearer who bore our guilt and shame. Hebrews 7.27 Do we fear the burning hot wrath of God kindled against our sin? Fear not. Why? For Jesus has become our propitiation. Bearing in himself God's wrath against us. 1 John 2.2 Do we ever wonder how in the world We can enjoy fellowship with God after stuffing up again and again and again. Oh, how if we could just meditate in the fact that Jesus already reconciled us to the Father. And now we have peace with God because of the cross. No slavery of sin, no fear of death, not even the devil himself has power over us. Jesus on the cross, he plundered Satan's house, rendered him powerless. That's Hebrews 2. Redeemed us from the slavery of sin and abolished death for us. And like Ralph prayed earlier, because Jesus was risen, we will rise with him in his likeness. And there is no temporal or eternal need that now cannot be found in all our satisfying Christ. He accomplished eternal redemption by his death. He did that. So that he in whose presence is the fullness of joy. Christ who is the fountain of satisfaction would be freely accessible to everyone who believe. Brothers, there ought to be a shout of acclamation, a roaring thunder of praise in the heart of all the blood people of God. Why? Because all that Christ left for us to do is to gladly embrace Him, to be our portion of inheritance. The the chief companion of our souls and the Lord of our lives. Then and for the rest of our lives, we are to feast in his delightful personhood. 
always in pursuit to be satisfied in Him, ever following Him, him, continually being grateful for him, joyfully sacrificing. And that like those women that we're about to read, always ministering to him. The question for today is, is this us? Did what Jesus accomplished on the cross fulfill its intended purpose in us? How do we respond to what Jesus accomplished for us? Because Mark here, he gives us three different responses to Jesus' finished work on the cross. And we can't escape what Mark is conveying here. For us, he once again corners us and he presses upon us to answer this question. How do we respond? To what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. The outline for today. We're going to look at the rejectors. Rejectors of Christ. That's the worst response. We're going to look at the repenters. Those who repent. Which is the excellent response. But there is even a far better response. The resolvers. That is the best response. We don't want to be the rejectors. No, we want to be the repenters. But we don't want to stop there. We don't want to stay like couch potatoes doing nothing in our lives after we repent. We need to move forward. We need to become resolvers, committed, our lives for Christ. Let's take it one at a time. The rejectors. Now, Jesus, just earlier, <clears throat> he cried out and he says there, <clears throat> during these dark hours, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now the start of this passage, verse 35, it says, when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he is calling for Elijah. Now, some commentators, certainly not all of them, um, they think or they say that those watching crowd genuinely misunderstood Jesus. And they thought that he was calling for Elijah to deliver him. And they say that because the, in Hebrews, the pronunciation of Eloi, you know how Jesus prayed Eloi, Eloi, Lamada, Sabachthani, Eloi and Elijah are similar. <clears throat> Well, I don't believe that this is the most accurate interpretation. Because Jesus was referring to Psalm 22 verse 1, and he quoted this verse verbatim. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this Psalm, Psalm 22, was a very well-known Psalm to the Jews at the time of Jesus. Many Jewish Memorize the Psalms of by heart and they would have known exactly what Jesus was saying. In fact, Jesus on the cross was not, did not just only fulfill Psalm 22 verse 1, but verse 2 where, where it says, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have, not re- but I have no rest. Or how about this in Psalm 22 verse 6 to 8? 
where it says, but I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their heads saying, commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. So it was obvious that Jesus was referring to this common psalm. And so when Jesus said this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was very clear. In fact, as it says that he cried out, remember? He cried out and said, my God, my God, why have you? Which means it was loud and clear. You can't miss it even if you try to. So. It wasn't that the watching crowd misunderstood Jesus. What we have here is the mockery of those heartless crowds. And they were playing with Jesus' words. Why? To to extend the, the length, the time of their entertainment as they were watching Christ suffering on the cross. In other words, it was a bad joke. They were kind of saying, well, check this out. This dude on the cross is so delusioned, he still thinks he's the Messiah. Oh, and, and look at him. You, you know, he's kind of waiting for Elijah to come down and give him a hand. Ha, ha, ha. Look, it's so funny. Uh, they were uncompassionate. They were ruthless. They had no affection for Christ whatsoever. Now what happened after this is John 19, 28, it says, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And then now we look at Mark 15, 36, the very next verse, it says, Someone ran and filled a sponge with a sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink. This person here would have been one of the four soldiers, um, those that were guarding the thieves on the cross to make sure that no one would deliver them. Um, Back then, um, Roman soldiers used to carry with them some vinegar or sour wine, as it says there, for own refreshment. And they were allowed to carry this on their duty. Now, once this soldier... Heard the crowd joke around. Certainly he doesn't, he wouldn't know Hebrew or, or, or um, Aramaic. So when he heard that the crowd was joking around and how Jesus was calling out for Elijah, he kind of liked it. So he kind of wanted to join a party of mockery. Because to him, he thought there was so much fun kicking the Son of God in the head while he was suffering the wrath of God. Figuratively speaking. So no doubt under the um, act, uh, no wonder acting under um, the command of the centurion, he picked up a sponge and it says there he filled it with wine And now he wanted to put it in Jesus' head. Jesus would have been hung way higher than the ground level. So he had to put it on a stick. And then he put it into Jesus' mouth. Wine 
is meant to be um, again um, some substance that numbs the pain. And people would read this and would say, "Oh wow, that is so kind of him. He he must have been such a sympathetic, good soldier." But no, look at his intention. Listen to what his motive was, as why he did what he did. <clears throat> it says, "Saying," meaning this is the same soldier that that gave Jesus the wine as he was giving the, Jesus the wine. He was saying, "What was he saying? Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down." It's kind of like saying, "Quickly, give me, give me some popcorn. Let's have a look. Let's watch what happens." Where's the chips and dips? We want to see. Is it going to really happen or not? So what, what do we have here? We've got those mockers of Jesus. Witness the preview of hell. The sun, when it was meant to be at its brightest, was at its darkest. Black, bitter darkness fell on the land. Surely something ought to have been triggered in their minds. What's going on here? And right before their own eyes, Jesus was fulfilling hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. Even a blind man could see it. Something supernatural was going on. Not to mention the earthquake that, was, um, uh, that Matthew spoke about. It happened at the same time. But it seems like the darkness that covered these people's hearts was much, much darker than the darkness fell on the land. Those were the rejectors of Christ. Their hearts have grown thick, callous. Their eyelids have become so shut and glued to their eyeballs. No light of the gospel, no ray of the good news could penetrate them. Those mockers of Jesus are like many unbelievers of our days. There is no love. There is no affection for Christ at all. And no matter what is presented to them of the gospel, they are as dead as the Egyptian mummies. They're warned. The black flag of the divine judgment is waved. But they're not moved. You tell them of the terror of the Lord, but they don't flee. They don't take Christ for refuge. And yet you go on the other, on the other hand and you, you speak to them of the love of God in Christ. And the red flag of the blood of Christ is waved before their eyes. But they're not awed. They're still not drawn to him. They're in a terrible condition. And yet again, the white flag of grace is waved before their eyes. As you tell them that salvation is offered freely. That they don't have to do anything. Only trust in Christ that he died for them. Believe that Jesus is their perfect substitute. 
And you plead with them and you urge them to come to Christ for salvation. And what do they do? They pull out thousands and one executors as to why they wouldn't come to him. They are in a terrible condition. Because just like those people at the time of Jesus, and as it says in Galatians before, whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Yet just like the crowd, they close their eyes. They drive both of their index fingers into their ears and they play dead fish and they say, ah, not for me. I don't care. Not now. Romans chapter 2 verse 5 and 6 speaks clearly of those people. And it says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. They're hanging by but a thread above the flames of fire. And every rejection of Christ adds more fuel to this fire. And it intensifies the blazing torment. And the one who's holding this thread is God who's ever increasing in his righteous wrath against him. And at any moment, the thread will tear. And they will fall into their endless anguish. Why? Because every sin must be punished. Either in Jesus Christ at the cross or in their damnation. What should we do? Don't be like those rejectors. Don't be. Well, what should we be like? We should be like the repentance. So we come to the second point, the repentance. So we'll go back to the narrative and let's first um, see the mighty power of Jesus in action. Something amazing in verse 37. Because though Jesus endured the full torment of hell, yet there is still immense energy in his body. Have a look. Verse 37, it says, and Jesus uttered a a loud cry, and breathed his last. Which means Jesus didn't die slowly due to exhaustion. His strength didn't gradually fade away and eventually passed away. Uh, this was the case for all those who were crucified at the time of Jesus, but not so with Christ. Nobody cries loudly and then immediately dies out of exhaustion or out of shortness of breath. It doesn't happen. So what happened at that time when Jesus died? John 19, 30 says, Jesus said, it is finished. Done and dusted, completed. Meaning the work that the Father had given him had now been accomplished. Atonement is done. Time to switch off. And in Luke 23, verse 47, it says, And Jesus crying out with a loud voice, that's a loud voice, and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. 
The forsaking of the Father is now over. The glory that Jesus enjoyed with the Father before eternity began, now He restored it back to Himself. And in Matthew 27 verse 50, listen to this. It says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, always with a loud voice, and yielded up His Spirit. This word yielded up means permitted. He allowed His Spirit to be handed over to the Father. What does that mean? It means Jesus' death was an act of His own will. It wasn't a natural death. See, no one could take away Jesus' life from him. He willfully surrendered it on his own exactly at the time when he chose fit. It's perfectly consistent with what John says in John 18, John 10, 18, where he says, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down. What? On my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. The same authority exercised to take up his spirit is the same authority he exercised to lay it down. He willingly gave up his life. It's unheard of, brothers. You you don't hear people say, well, it's time for me to die. And then, boom, all of a sudden they die. doesn't work that way. No. Even when when people shoot themselves with a bullet, it is not their power that would have killed them. It's the power of the bullet. But with Jesus, it is his own power. It is his own initiative. It is his own authority that he yielded up his spirit. No one could do that but Jesus alone. And that's amazing. This is amazing. Just to close your eyes and say, all right. Time for me, it's finished. Time for me to give up my spirit. And your soul has gone to the Father. Now what happened after that is another supernatural miracle. It was another miracle after a miracle after a miracle. Verse 38, it says, And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This veil in the Old Testament, you read it for yourself. It says it's made up of uh, thick strands of blue purple and scarlet and they're all interwoven in a in a white fabric in such a way that you would look at it and what you see is a picture of a cherubim um a gigantic one because i believe it's about 20 meters high so it's quite high and uh it was more of a a guardian angel barring as it were sinful men from entering the holy of holies Holiest of holiest is, is a place where it signifies the presence of, of a holy God. Only the high priest, as we said earlier, would enter through the veil once a year on the day of atonement. And when he enters, he would carry with him blood of an animal sacrifice to sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And that is again to signify that without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin and there is no access to the Father. So the veil served as a continual reminder that there is a vast chasm between sinners and the holy God. But what happened at the point of Jesus' death? The moment he died. What time did he die? 3 p.m. What was going on? 
was a Passover feast. It was precisely the time when the priests were busy in the temple sacrificing the Passover lambs. And all of a sudden, the veil of the temple was torn in half. That is to say that the barrier to God has been abolished. The access to a holy God has been granted to those who would seek him. On what basis? On whose account? On the basis of Jesus' death. No more animal sacrifices were required. Jesus was once for all the perfect substitute that atoned for our sin. And what happened to that veil was a true reflection to what happened to the iron gates of heaven. Just as the veil was torn in half, so Jesus, by his vicarious death, demolished the gates of heaven. It was a meltdown. And those who will come to God through him would find forgiveness of sin. Then after that, verse 39, it says, When a centurion who was standing right in front of him. Now, what's, what's a centurion? What does it mean? Who is a centurion? He's a Roman soldier with a high ranking. Uh, he was in charge of 100 men. And in this narrative, we can see that he was the captain of those soldiers that crucified our Lord. So he's the leader of the execution squad. He was in charge of everything that happened to Jesus from the, from the point of his trial all the way to his death. So he was in charge of the scourging. He was the chief person of the mockery that took place. No soldier could breathe even one breath without his permission. Much less place a crown of thorns over Jesus' head or placing a reed on his hand. And so he was the one that, that led to undressing Jesus. The gambling for Jesus' clothing, the nailing of his hands and feet, the drinking of the wine, every evil, wicked crime that was done unjustly unto the Lord. This centurion had his name signed and approved on it. To be a centurion, to lead the crucifixion of, of Jesus Christ, this centurion was barbaric. He was a savage animal, bloodthirsty monster. And yet, what does the text say? While he was standing right in front of Jesus and he was looking up and it says, saw the way he, that's Jesus, breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. This centurion before Friday, he hardly knew anything about Jesus. But he read the gospel tract. He saw the sign above Jesus' head that he's the king of the Jews. He heard the mockers preaching the gospel. He saved others, yet he cannot save himself. He saw the way Jesus breathed his last, meaning he saw his power. 
He heard Jesus cry. It was a cry of confidence. An acclamation of, of victory. And he would have thought, huh, I, I, let, I led countless of men to their execution. And they all fell vict- victim to death. And in, in terror, all fought hard. And they struggled to breathe. But I've never seen anything like this. What did he see? He saw Jesus as he was voluntarily yielding up his spirit to God, calling God Father. And you know what his response was? Matthew tells us he became very frightened. Of course. You've got to be frightened. When you realize that you crucified the Son of God, you've got to be frightened. Luke 23, 47 tells us he began praising God. And Mark here says, truly means indeed. With deep conviction. Meaning he would say, there is no doubt in my mind. This man was the Son of God. I believe when we piece all the parts together in all Gospels, we find that this man was surely saved at the foot of the cross. While the so-called religious phonies, self-righteous, In today's language, false converts. Who knew the law of God, the rituals, so stubbornly rejected Jesus Christ and their hearts were getting harder and harder. Yet, oh, the mercy of God still extends and reaches even to the most wicked man. Here is another vile sinner, like the penitent thief on the cross. One of them was crucified, the other was a crucifier, but both were wretched, miserable sinners. Yet Jesus saved them both. This soldier, yet another trophy of Jesus Christ, won by Christ when? At the very peak of his own wickedness. Even even while Jesus was getting crucified on the cross, one by one is getting saved. In fact, if you read the Gospels together, you find even the the other four soldiers began praising God, knowing, knowing that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, when we meet this centurion in a celestial city, One day we'll be sitting, fellowshipping together, reflecting on how our sins nailed Jesus on the cross. This centurion would jump out of his seat and would say, no, I, I will not let you take this portion of grace away from me. 
What do you mean, centurion? Well, you can say your sins nailed Jesus on the cross, figuratively speaking. And yes, he had mercy on you. But it was my hands that nailed Jesus, literally. It was actually my saliva that was sprayed on his face. I'm the one who gave the command to press the crown of thorns on his head. It was me. I'm the one who mocked him publicly. I beat him brutally with a reed. I punched him in his face. I scourged him in his back. I did all of this literally speaking. And while I was harsh towards him, oh, how compassionate was he to me. And while I made him suffer, oh, how his heart was yet still beating with love for me. And because he loved me, he never yelled. He never lashed back at me. I saw him there die to save me. He died for my sins that I committed against him literally, personally. And this centurion, his voice would echo from heaven down to us even now, today. And he would say, if Christ was so infinitely gracious to save me, me, a wretched sinner like me, who, who beats men for breakfast and, and breaks their bones for lunch. Listen. If Jesus could save that centurion, who would dare to rise up, raise his hands and says, I'm out of reach for Christ to save me. No one would dare. Brothers, everyone here ought to shout with a shout of acclamation saying, Hallelujah, Jesus is a great savior. If if he could save such a sinner as a centurion, he could save me. He could save my family. He could save my children. Here are the repentance. And we find ourselves like this centurion and say from our hearts that Jesus is the Son of God. But even better, the resolvers. Resolvers. Who are the resolvers? It's the faithful. It's the committed. It's the all the way or no way. It's the loyal. Who were they? Verse 40. There were also some women, not men, Women, the weakest of the weak, the poorest of the poor, looking on from a far distance. These who were the courageous women. Those who did not settle for just believing. 
And only when it's convenient for us, we follow the Savior. When it's not raining too much, when COVID is not rampant too much, when the police are not finding us too much, what well, we come, we follow Jesus. No. They loved Christ. And in loving him, risking their lives, and they followed him all the way to the cross. They never settled for the bare minimum of following Christ. No. Let's have a look at them. Who were these women? First, among them, among whom were Mary Magdalene. Now, we know Mary Magdalene. It's the woman that Jesus um, cast out seven demons out of. Right? Now, Magdalene is not her surname. Uh, she was from a, a village. And that village is called Magdala. It's near Capernaum. Now, judging based on the Gospels, she would have been a single woman, unmarried, and had no children. Why is that? Because if she did, she would have been identified as a case. That's just a common thing. She would have been either identified by her husband or by her children. But no, there's no male in her family. So therefore, she was identified by the city where she lives. Yet, her love for Christ out outweighed her fear of being a single woman. No matter the danger awaiting for her, without a husband to protect her, without children to look after her, she threw herself in the midst of the mockers, sympathizing for her Savior. Oh, would we be like Mary Magdalene? And Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph. Now, Mary, the mother of James, the less. We know James, the less, his apostle. Sometimes he's identified as uh, James, the son of Alphaeus. He's one of the apostles, hint, hint, that forsook the Lord and ran for his life at Gethsemane. Yet his mother was there at the cross. Wow. And then you have Salome. I believe that's how you pronounce her name. But don't count on it. Salome. Now this is the wife of Zebedee. He had the business of fishing. It was a fisherman, a fish, uh, fishing business at Capernaum. And she's also the mother of James and John. Again, the other two apostles of Jesus. And Jesus called them the sons of thunder. What do we know about these women? They were ordinary women. None of them was called to be a preacher, an apostle, or even a pastor, or elder, or anything. None of them were miracle makers. But their commitment and devotion to Christ had no match among the greatest of the apostles. Right? No match. Where's James, the son of thunder, or the son of Alphaeus? Where's Peter, the, the rock? 
Where is Simon the Zealot? Where are they? Where are the macho men? You know, the masculine men. Yeah, we will go with you, Jesus, all the way. Where are those men that were hiding in a cave somewhere, perhaps hanging off a, a, a branch of an olive tree somewhere at Gethsemane still? And these women who always lived in a shadow, in an obscure, no one really knows much about them. They put to shame ten thousands of men. Because while the apostles were undercover, run for shelter, these devoted women were the last to witness the death of Jesus. And guess what? They were the first to witness his resurrection. Their deep love for Jesus was resilient. Their sincere loyalty was strong. How bold, how loyal were these women? What, what sacrifice would they have denied Christ of? Mary, the mother of James the less, would say, you know what? Even if my son, who's meant to be an apostle, forsook my Lord, I will go to Jesus alone. And Salome would respond and would, she would say, yes. And even if Zebedee, my husband, or my son James are afraid to come with me, I will too go to Jesus alone. And Mary Magdalene would say, I am alone. I live alone. And I will go alone. And even if they nail me to a cross next to my Savior, I would most gladly die alone. Verse 41. When he was in Galilee, this is what they used to do. Nothing new, just simple. What did they used to do? Follow him and minister to him. What devotion? What dedication? Their hearts were filled with burning passion, hot passion for Christ. And overflowing with deep affection to him. There was unquenchable fire burning in their bones that no brutality of a Roman soldier, no injustice of the religious leaders could ever put this fire down. And when others could have stayed at home and excused themselves and others would have said, ah, oh, it's getting too dark for me. Oh, oh look, there's earthquake. Quick, run for shelter. It's okay. Jesus understands. But no. Not with these women. The love for Christ was just too much to hold themselves back. They were not operating by the bare minimum principle. It's not a sin to stay at home when it's dark. No, that's not how they were functioning. where they would see Jesus most clearly. 
where they would be most intimate with their Savior. That's exactly where they would go. And no police nor a virus would ever scare them off from laying down their lives for Jesus. So, they were stuck to their Lord like strong glue. It says there, and there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Few men, perhaps. We know 12. There's only one was at the cross, that is John. But these women, they would have thought, you know what, no matter how long it takes, no, no matter how far we go, they would say, where he is, we will follow. Whether to his death or to his resurrection, when our lives are threatened, and even while we have broken hearts and grieving, we'll be there with him, with our Savior. We eagerly long for him. Our souls are craving to be with him. Brothers, is this us? Is this us? Are we sold out for Christ, devoted to follow him no matter the cost? Brothers, I pray that this will be true of us. I pray that we would say, God, give me this heart that these women had. Have you come to believe that Jesus is your perfect substitute? And in believing, you now treasure him supremely. That whatever goes around you, whatever resistance you may face, whether at home or work or government, with all of our financial and physical pressure, would you say that Christ is the excellent one? That he is my greatest companion, the Lord of my heart. I pray that you would. And if that is the case, then resolve to seek him unconditionally like these women did. I love what it says about these women. It says they follow him. They used to follow him and they used to minister to him. Follow him. Read his word. That's a personal devotion time. Commit to that. And also, the public devotion. Evening service, the Tuesday night, men study, women study. Let them all be filled with the souls of those who are sold out for Christ. And minister to Him. Minister. Again, how do we minister to Christ now? By ministering to His saints, right? What does that mean? It's obvious. Ministering to the head is by ministering to his body, right? Ministering to the bridegroom is by ministering to his own bride, the church. So with all your hurts and pains, with all your shortfalls and hobbies and everything that you have, lay them all before Christ by ministering to his saints. So that we all together are able to proclaim the gospel that we so deeply cherish 
Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you, Lord, for Christ. He has accomplished unspeakably, inexpressibly wonderful atonement for us. Bearing our guilt and shame. Drinking the full cup of God's wrath for us. Abolishing the wall that separated us from enjoying being in the presence of you, God. Purchasing us from the slavery of sin. Conquering death. Rendering Satan powerless. Oh, how grateful we are that now we can enjoy him. We can delight in him. We can actually experience such intimate and deep joy in Christ, who's our best companion, greatest Lord, worthy of our ministry and following. Oh, we pray, Lord. We pray that we move away from being the rejecters of Christ and we come and throw ourselves at the foot of the cross like the centurion, confessing that Jesus is the Lord, the Son of God. Oh, how we pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts and cause us to see Christ so magnificent that we wouldn't settle for just being thrown at the foot of the cross, but we would follow Christ today wherever he would send us. No matter how much pride we have to trample upon in order to follow him. Oh, Lord, let it be. Let it be called that Saving Grace Bible Church would follow and minister to Jesus even all the way to the cross with all the pressure of the mockery around us and the pressure to succumb to all those voices that call upon us to move away from the cross. Oh God, we please, please, Lord, cause us to be so committed and so devoted to Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.